When we started this last half of Nehemiah's book, I mentioned to you that the first, the first part was our being separated to God for, for serviceability. But this part is our being separated to God for sanctification. This, this section is about sanctification. When we give thought to the idea of sanctification, we should immediately recognize the need to be obedient to God's word. It's just simple. It's just this simple, folks. If you want to be a sanctified person, you need to set yourself aside and say, listen, this is what God's word says, and I'm going to do what God's word says. If if God's word says do not do that, then guess what? We don't do that. If the word says do it, then we should do it. It's just that simple. It's just sheer obedience. Sheer obedience. There's a fellow by the name of John Grudem. John Grudem is a great theologian. He's written a wonderful systematic theology that if you can afford the book for about 50 or 60 bucks, I would recommend that you get it. But it's about that thick. It's called Systematic Theology by John Grudem. But he writes in that book uh, the following. The initial step in sanctification involves a definite break from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin. You know, there's a funny thing about us. Sometimes, even though we know that it offends God, we know that, that it opposes His Word, sometimes we get in a habit that we commit a sin and we find ourselves enjoying doing it. We find ourselves enjoying doing what is in violation of God's Word. And the reason we keep on doing that is because there is the prince of the power of the air who rules over this atmosphere and, and he deals and he deals with people. He deals with all, all of us, even Christian people, not just the lost, but Christian people. And, and he tries to deceive us into doing that which opposes God. And sometimes you and I, all of us, there are, there are things in our lives that there is, it's not even a temptation anymore. That when, when that thing just comes along, we just go into it like, you know, like, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. We just go into it and it's not even a temptation. We do the very things that we don't want to do. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things I should be doing, I ain't doing them. The things I, I, I want to do, I'm not Listen, we have the same problem. I'm doing things I don't want to do. I'm not doing things I should be doing. And we begin to love those things. And biblically, we can call it being a stronghold. But in social life, we call it an addiction. What are we addicted to that that opposes the Word of God? If we love to sin... It opposes God. Let me give you a good definition of sin. A good definition of sin is anything that robs God of the glory that is due Him. And for sanctification to occur in our lives, there must be a yielding, a yielding to God's Word as being the authority as to our belief and our behavior. How many times have you heard some, some fancy somebody or other get on TV and, and, you know, and they, they might be a political person, it could be somebody else, but they'll get up and say that I can separate my belief from my behavior. Folks, you can't do that. 
If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, then your life ought to exemplify the fact that your life, that you follow the word of God, that you are a Christian, that you're, going not, you're not going to turn to the left nor to the right, but God directs your path. But when you say that my belief, my belief and my behavior are two different things, that means that I believe one thing, but I'm going to do something else. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Then do it. Don't say that you believe the Bible's the word of God, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do this instead. It makes God out to be a liar. Paul says, writing to the book, uh, writing to the church at Rome, he says in Romans chapter six, verses twelve and thirteen. Therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Sanctification. You know what to do. Church, you know what to do. You know what is right, then do it. We cannot expect God to bless us apart from obedience to him. We find in our scripture passage for today that the nobles of the land along with the religious leaders, their wives and their children had determined to follow the path of spiritual belief. They said this is what, this is what God's word says we're going to follow that. They therefore set forth a, 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 a covenant agreement to which we read in verse 29, are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They swore to God. They affirmed themselves. They committed themselves. They made a pledge. They made an oath. They made a vow that they would follow God's law. And to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord, it says. Their commitment to follow and observe God's laws has, according to their pledge, become their document, their covenant concerning their liberty. Not only this, but it but became their value system's foundational document this is what we value and this is what we base our lives upon it's the foundation of who we are as a people of God this is this is the foundation of it and even further it became the very heartbeat of their idea of civil government that not that they were a democracy not that they were a monarchy not that they were a totalitarian government, but they said, we are going to be a theocracy that God is our, that God is our head. Jesus says that he is the head of this church. It is not our denomination. It is not the pastor. It, listen, it is not the convention. It is not the government. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. They said... That God would be the head of their civil government, though. Even though they were under the, 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 the ruling reign of the king of Persia, they said, 
The king of Persia may be over us, but we're going to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but we're going to give to God the things that are God's, that God is going to be our ultimate head. He's above all things. Folks, do you believe that God should be the head of this church? Is God the head of this church? Is God the head of your home? Is God the head of you? Ask yourself that question. So important was it to them that God be the head of their civil government that we even find these words in Psalm 33 and verse 12. It's like a hand in a glove. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is the what? The Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now then, because of the standard which they had imposed upon themselves, that is the covenant that they swore to live by, the people, the people came to the, the realization that by, if we're going to live by God's laws, that we have a problem in our homes. Do you ever find that you want to live by God's law, but there's a problem in the home? They determined that they had a problem in the home. And here's what that problem was, that they had a mixed marital relationship they had a, a, a chosen person of God married to an unbeliever. The people of Israel had married themselves to the people of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And you say, well, what is, why, why is that important? Well, we'll get to that in just a very moment. I, I just remember that. The, the people of God's choosing... The people who said they're going to follow God. They married people who don't believe in God. And it began, it began to be a, a, a problem to them. Outside of the confines of doctrinal beliefs. You have in the home. A lost person and a saved person. And guess what? Here's a lost person, and here's a saved person, and you know what happens? You have a, a lost mom and a saved dad, or a lost dad and a saved mom. Guess what happens? Children occur. Isn't that amazing how that works out? Children are born, and that child is brought into that family, and here's one parent saying, believe in God, and the other parent says, what God? Where does that leave that child? Where does that leave that child? Where does that leave that marital relationship? You know, I've mentioned before that in, in marriage, there, there are numbers of, 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 of items that cause divorce. But one of them is, one of them is religion, spirituality, belief in God. That if, if one member doesn't believe and one does believe, they come to loggerheads. And there's this continual disagreement as to who the head of the family is. And that child then that is born into that family is in the mix. And it's confused. It was a violation to them of the oath that they had taken. You find this in verse 30. It was a violation to have that kind of relationship. So then, 
The thought behind this, if there is no unified spiritual belief, then how would, the, how would there possibly be any unity, any agreement in regard to marriage and to family? Let me just read this to you from, from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 and 24. This is the last chapter of Nehemiah, but let me just read this. It says, in those days, Nehemiah says, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. It's important that he mentions these names. I'll tell you in just a minute. As for their children have spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them, listen, none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. You couldn't speak God's language but the language of his own people. Why do they mention Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab? Ashdod, if you look at a map of Israel, if you go to the Mediterranean seaside of Israel, but in the southern section, across, straight across from the Dead Sea in, or in Jerusalem, look at that southern section, and there is a little strip of land called Philistia. It's where the Philistines lived. And the Philistines were, were uncircumcised of heart, not just of body, but of heart. They disavowed. Their god was a god by the name of Dagon. Dagon was half fish and half human, half man. Looked like a male mermaid. Charlie the tuna with a human body. That was their god. Philistia, all, all, all through Hebrew history in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, Ashdod being a part of Philistia, the Philistines hated Israel. They hated the people of God. But there's two other names. There is the name of Ammon and Moab mentioned. You know, you know who Ammon and Moab are? They are the descendants of the children that Lot, after he ran away from Sodom, and his two daughters incessantly had relationships with him. Those are the two kids that were born. That's where those came from. So there's this quasi-Jewish belief, and the rest is a mixture in marriage that was never biblically approved. So let's... Let's apply this thought to the present day circumstances. You can be certain that when there are mixed religious values in the home, that constant and consistent spiritual and moral values will invariably be weakened. That's the only recourse left. If, if there is not a straight avenue to God in the home, I guarantee you that whatever avenue you take besides that, is, is, is out of bounds. It's kind of like my golf game. If I don't go straight down the middle, which I rarely do, it's out of bounds. And guess what? Not only do you, do you have to replace that ball because you ain't going to get it back, but it costs you a stroke. And I guarantee you, when you go out of bounds with God, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Let's now move on to verse 32 of our text. Look at, look at verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 32. We 
Notice that first word, we. We also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the, surface, for the service of the house of our God. That first word, we, is important. You, you should or you will note that this covenant of theirs had as a main doctrine the fact that there was a solemn willingness by all the people to turn from any act of committing evil. You'll find that in verses 29 through 31. They said, whatever is evil, we're going to stay, we're going to stay away from it. Boy, haven't you done every, every January the 1st, you, you, put your, you give yourself a new resolution. You know, we never keep them because by January the 2nd, it's over. You know, you've failed already. But by, Lord, we're going we're gonna to abide by all of your laws. That's what they said, 2931. Okay, we're gonna, all your laws, we're going to do it. In short, theirs was a pledge to do what was good. Lord, we pledge to do what is good, what is right. We're going to do what we ought to do in order to honor you. Doing good not only includes the regular observance, observance of the Sabbath day. Listen, it's good for you to come to church. You ought to come to church. Every seat you, li- you leave empty in here, there's probably some demon in there trying to disrupt you. God's house ought to be full. We ought to, listen, if every Christian in this Hazelwood area came to church, our churches would be full. I'm not just saying to this church, but every church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ought to be full on the Lord's day. Why are we staying home? You say, well, preacher, it's the pandemic. How long are we going to stick with this thing? Come to church. Right. The regular observance of the Sabbath day. But they required of themselves, they required of themselves, we, it says, required themselves that they would not forsake the necessary upkeep of the house of the Lord. Verse 38, whatever it takes to keep this place looking good, whatever it takes to keep this place functional. You know, there's a thing called the second law of thermodynamics. You know what the law of thermodynamics is? It is this, that when I was 28, I looked a whole lot younger than I do now at 78. The law of thermodynamics says this, that you can have a brand new, brand new, best car in the world, a 2022 Mustang six-speed. Oh, yes. You can have that car, but guess what? Keep it for about five to six years and tell me what that's going to look like. you got about 80,000 miles on it. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That things tend to go from really nice to really not so nice. To really nice and young and healthy to looking like this. (laughs) The second law of thermodynamics. The upkeep of God's house. Even buildings begin to crumble. 
and to dissolve and waste and wear away. For, for the upkeep of the house of God, they agreed to pay one-third of a shekel or the modern day's equivalent, are you ready for this? Annually, annually, a third of a shekel. Folks, I could be wrong because, listen, you know, I went to college. I didn't do real good at math or algebra. I was so glad to get done with that. And I says, Lord, never again. Never put me in a job where I have to use algebra or math or anything like that. But I figured this out the best I could at about $240 a year. $240 a year. That's on top of the tithe. That's on top of the tithe. Not including the tithe, but on top of it. The shekel is, there's, there's all, a, a shekel is not currency, by the way. A shekel is a weight. It's a weight. You, you weigh things. Uh, Goliath, remember the guy's nine foot, nine inches tall and whatever. Uh, he had 125 shekels was the weight of his spearhead. His coat of mail was 5,000 shekels. Well, shekels is just a weight. But there's a shekel also that's a part of their currency, their economic system. And it's weighed in gold. So a shekel, a shekel is two-fifths of one ounce. If the current American rate is about $1,800 per ounce for gold, a shekel is going to, a, a, a third of a shekel comes about $240 or so, give or take. This money would go for both the upkeep of the temple as well as for the maintaining of the temple furnishings. We do that here, don't we? We allow so much money to go to keep the building looking okay. And for the purchasing of animals for them, necessary for sacrifice, they use that shekel for that. We should at this point also keep in mind the heavy taxes that were placed upon these Jewish people. Do you know that they had to pay the tremendous amount of tax to the king of Persia? So they paid a tax to the king of Persia. They paid a temple tax. And then they paid a tax for the upkeep of the temple. It's a lot of money. But they were willing to give it. They were willing to give it. And they gave it with the thankful, grateful attitude. So now we come to this question. I mean, this is a utopian place. These people really love God. Really love God. Listen to their, their covenant, their commitment to Him. Lord, we're going to do everything you want. We're not going to do anything bad. We're going to do everything good. We're going to support you. We're going to support the church. We're going to support the temple. Listen, we're going to be the best citizens we can possibly be. Here's the question. How did this pledge or oath or covenant work out for the Jewish community? How do you think they did with this? How well do you think that went? How long did it last? Well, let me just give you some history here. In answering that question, you need to turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Most noted scholars and theologians will all agree that Ezra, Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor, and Malachi the prophet were all contemporaries. That is that they were all part of the 5th century, the mid-5th century B.C., about 450 or so B.C. 
They were all part of that group. That Malachi was right there with Ezra and Nehemiah. Listen very carefully. Malachi was right there with Ezra and Nehemiah. Israel vowed to exclude any and all practices of idolatry and would vow to be orthodox, conservative in their beliefs. Just like you are. Say, I believe the Word of God is the Word of God. I'm going to stick with it. You're conservative, theological conservative. You're an evangelical conservative. I believe that Jesus is God and the Bible is God's Word. And you're conservative theologically. That's what they were, according to the standard they had. They were orthodox, conservative. And for all intents and purposes, they were dead. They were dead. One of the negative factors was that they diluted Listen very carefully. Here's the problem that they had. They diluted their worship toward God. Worship meant nothing to them. They were religious, but they were as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. They were lost. Malachi the last book of the Old Testament writes in order to cause them to reflect on the pledge that they made. Malachi is trying to bring them back to the pledge they made. Listen to what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. He's writing to the same people that Ezra and Nehemiah spoke of. He says, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my, that's God's statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? And God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. God's calling and says, return to me. Come back to me. I, I am tired of your sacrifices. I'm tired because your heart is not there. You're doing things, but your heart is not there. You made this pledge to me, but your heart is not there. Church, listen. You may be here today, but is your heart with Jesus? Is your heart there? In only a short while, after making a vow to follow God, to observe God's commands, Israel turned their hearts away from him. So then, let's apply all this, and we'll conclude, to today. We find in Nehemiah 10, Israel is making a spiritual covenant. They're making a, they made a marital uh, agreement. They institute a temple tax and their personal pledge to fully observe the Word of God. That's what they did. So ask ourselves, what covenant do we live by? And what value is God's Word to us today? Let me answer the last question first. What value is God's word to us today? If we fail to observe his biblical standards, church, if we fail to observe his biblical standards, then his words are of little value to us. If God says something, 
It is like a church says, we need to evangelize people. We need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what the church will do? Well, let's vote on that. Why are we voting on that? Why should any church vote on evangelizing anybody? It's a command from God. Why do we vote on what God, is he the head? We don't vote on what the, on what the boss says. You don't vote on it, you do it. The first question, what do we need to, to do in evaluating our own personal lives? Listen to these biblical standards. These are biblical standards, folks, that we, according to God's word, that you and I are required to do. This is what you and I are required to do. There's no voting on it. This, this, this is not a democracy. God says, well, go ahead and take a vote. It's a theocracy. God says, I'm the head. I'm telling you what to do. Number one, we are to assemble ourselves together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? When Jesus is coming back. Second of all, the making of disciples. We don't vote on that. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Number three, third thing we ought to be doing, without ever, ever voting on it, we ought, church ought to be doing it, the exercise of spiritual worship. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, The true worshipers... The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his followers. And then Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must, listen, must worship in spirit and truth. God wants spiritual worship. Not just playing games, but we ought to be really worshiping God. Number four, the promotion of personal Holiness. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Personal holiness. You know when there's a least personal holiness? I'll tell you, when the least personal holiness, have you ever driven a car on a highway? It's every person for himself. There's no, there's no holiness out there. It's just, a, I got to get from point A to point B and don't get in my way. And folks, we as Christians, if you're one of these people that's got one of these little fish on your car or a cross on your car and you're driving like the devil, we got a problem here, don't we? That's why I don't put it on my car. <laughs> Number five, the practice, listen, the practice of effectual fellowship, Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, 
make my joy complete by being of one, being of one, the same mind, being of two, maintain the same love, three, be united in spirit, and four, be intent on one purpose. When we talk of fellowship in many of our churches, the first thing that comes to mind, hey, the church is going to have a fellowship. What comes to mind? There's food. The only thing that food and fellowship have in common, they both start with the letter F. And that's where you draw the line. The kind of fellowship Paul's talking about is the fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. Not a, not a sandwich or a casserole. Number six, the preaching of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Folks, this is so important. A church needs to have the Word of God. Not, not, not some diatribe on why we don't like something or other or on politics or on whatever agendas out there. That's not what the church is about. The church is nothing. And listen, if, we're gonna stand, if you're going to stand behind the pulpit and preach something, you preach about Jesus, about God's Word. Paul says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His, and his kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And folks, there's maybe other things you can think of, but folks, these are, these are imperatives. That's what, we should not be voting on this. Never vote on these things. A sanctified people are to love God's word and follow his teachings. Is this church, are you and I committed to these areas? Or are we saying that we are yet allowing other worldly voices to lead us astray from the purity of being Christ's church? Jesus says, that he's the shepherd and the sheep hear his voice. In this world today, there's a cacophony of noise. There's noise all around us. The world's given all kinds of noise to us. All kinds of noise. But are you hearing the shepherd's voice? He's calling out to you. And there may be a person here today, a person here today that does not know Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you in your heart. He's made you aware that you're lost. You're without Christ in your life, and you need to come to Him for salvation today. Listen, are you today saying, Pastor, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm forsaking my sin. I want to live for Jesus. I want Jesus in my life. I want Him in my heart. I want, I want to be part of the Savior's kingdom. I want to be taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. If that's what you want today, I'm asking you to do this. Listen, let's pray together. Let's talk to God about this. Let's celebrate together the fact that today you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. 